Hi, this is Kim Dixon, and welcome back to Weber County's Greatest Generation. I'm actually recording this podcast from Torrey, Utah, which is just outside of Capitol Reef National Park. So there may be some background noise, but hopefully it's not too bad. Today's story is about one of the seven Weber County Marines who were killed in the South Pacific during World War II, and his name was Captain James Owen Fox. He was born in Logan, Utah on December 27, 1916, the son of Owen and Elva Jackson Fox. In the 1930 census, the family was living in Evanston, Wyoming, where his dad was a farmer. He was the oldest with a sister, Jean, two years younger, and a brother, Bernard, who was eight years younger. In 1930, the family moved to Riverdale, Utah. He attended the same high school that I did, Weber High, which was called Weber County High School at the time. It was located on between 11th and 12th of Washington Boulevard, where the old Shopco building now stands. Go Warriors! He played on the 1934-35 Warrior football squad, coached by Mark Balaf, and he's mentioned on the Weber Honor Roll of football. Not sure what that is, but he was also on the track team. He graduated from Weber's largest class to that date, where 214 received diplomas in the school auditorium, which, by the way, was on the third floor. After his high school graduation, he attended Weber College, which was then a two-year school, and was on the football team there. And although of the six games played, their record was three wins, two losses, and one tie, but they had a, quote, outstanding victory over the powerful BYU Junior Varsity, and that seemed to make up for the so-so season. He graduated in 1937, and for the next two years of college, he attended Utah State in Logan, Utah, and was also on the Aggie football team. He graduated in 1939. In the 1940 census, his dad, Owen, had his own farm in Riverdale. His mom, Elva, was a housewife. James was 23, his sister, Jean, was 21, and a nurse at LDS Hospital. Bernard was eight, and there were three more children, Byron, who was 10, Glenn, 7, and Alice Ann, who was 4. He joined the Marines on February 22, 1941, about 10 months before the Pearl Harbor attack. And while home on a furlough, he married Aldine Hatfield on August 10, 1942. He was assigned to the 2nd Marine Division, the 18th Regiment, Company A. So by the summer of 1943, the Solomons had been won in the South Pacific, and the next target was to push into the Central Pacific and attack Japanese strong points and communication lines. So the next target would be the Gilbert Islands, now part of Kiribati. And they are a chain of 16 atolls and coral islands halfway between New Guinea and Hawaii. They had been held by the British until December 8, 1941, the same day as Pearl Harbor, So this battle will take place on Tarawa, and Tarawa was the key to the island hopping strategy that was designed to get us to the Mariana Islands, and when we took that over, we would be able to supply airfields and support to land-based bombers who would go on to attack Tokyo. So now they are looking to take over the airfield in Tarawa, and Operation Galvanic would take place on the Tyling Island of Beicho, the largest island of the atoll roughly 2,400 miles southwest of Pearl Harbor. This tiny island was only two miles long, with a total of about 12 square miles of land, 
At its narrowest width, it is only 800 yards across. There were about 4,500 Japanese in Tarawa at the time, and the majority of them were defending the atoll on Beito. The Japanese knew what the Americans were trying to accomplish, and so they had been working for nearly a year to fortify that island. About 1,200 of the forces that were there were Korean slave laborers. The rest of them were made up of Imperial Japanese Navy. This battle would be the first large-scale encounter between the Marines and the Japanese Special Fighting Forces. The U.S. had been forewarned that the, quote, naval units of this type are usually highly trained and have a greater tenacity and fighting spirit. Plus, they have had over a year to prepare for the invasion they knew was coming. Their strategy was not to let the Americans off the beach, and they established a series of 14 8-inch coastal defense guns that were securing concrete bunkers around the island. There were 500 pillboxes built from log and sand, and many had been reinforced with metal, and trenches had been dug underground that connected to each other. The troops could move underground to wherever they were needed. Japanese Rear Admiral Kieji Shibazaki, and I'm sure that is nowhere near correct, was so sure of the defense that he encouraged his troops by telling them it would take one million men over a hundred years to take Tarawa. It will only take three days, but it will come at a terrible cost. The battle for Tarawa will be fought between November 20th through the 23rd of 1943. This American invasion force was the largest yet assembled for a single operation. It consisted of 17 aircraft carriers, 12 battleships, 8 heavy cruisers, 4 light cruisers, 66 destroyers, and 36 transport ships, which hauled the 2nd Marine Division and the Army's 27th Infantry Division for a total of 18,000 Marines, all to take an island of only 12 square miles. As the flotilla moved into the bay in the pre-dawn hours of November 20th, the 8-inch coastal guns opened fire. The battleships Colorado and Maryland fired back with several 16-inch guns aiming to take them out. One shell penetrated the ammunition storage for one of the guns that set off a huge explosion. Three of the four guns were quickly eliminated, and the damage left the approach to the lagoon open. An air attack commenced at 6.10 a.m., after that, the naval bombardment of the island began and went on for three hours. Two minesweepers with two destroyers to provide cover entered the lagoon and cleared out all the mines. The plan was to land the Marines on the North Beach, which had been divided into three sections, Red Beach 1 on the far west, Red Beach 2 at the center west of the pier, and Red Beach 3, which was east of the pier. After studying the tides, marine planners expected them to race to a depth of five feet over the reef, which would allow the Higgins boats and the alligators used to bring the troops to shore access to the beach. Unfortunately, the ocean experienced a neap tide, that's N-E-A-P, which is a tide just after the first or third quarters of the moon when there is the least difference between high and low tides. In other words, the Higgins boats were not going to make it over the reef and are stuck in the bay. While they're trying to rectify this, all the Japanese who had survived the shelling went back to their guns and started firing. The Marines who were aboard the alligators were able to cross to the beach. 
Under heavy fire, a number of the alligators, after delivering their men, went back out to the reef to get the men who were stranded. However, most of them were too badly shut up to float. So the Marines in the Higgin boats are stuck on the reef 500 yards from shore. The first wave who had made it to the beach are now pinned down behind the sea well, which was just off the sand. And making matters worse is that the assault path to the shore is now congested with bombed out Higgins boats and wounded and dead Marines. But they continued, and by the end of the first day, 5,000 Marines had landed, but there had been 1,500 killed. By noon of the second day, the tide began to rise, and the Navy destroyers were able to maneuver closer to the shore and land accurate support fire. So the Marines were able to move inland, blasting the enemy with grenades, demolition packs, and flamethrowers. On day three, November 22nd, which, just an FYI, was exactly 20 years before President Kennedy would be assassinated, Marines were able to destroy several Japanese pillboxes and fortifications. That night, the Japanese launched a furious, all-out suicidal attack, and all but 17 Japanese soldiers died defending Beicho. 76 hours after the start, the island was finally secured. And even before the battle was over, the Seabees had been working on the airfield. And on November 23rd, the first of the fighter bombers was able to land. And this was an important fuel stop for bombers in their fight to get the Marianas. There is a famous quote by Colonel David Shoup, awarded a Congressional Medal of Honor for his actions in the battle that day. Quote, casualties many, percentage dead, unknown, combat efficiency, we are winning. It is engraved on a wall in the National Museum of the Marine Corps in Quantico, Virginia. The final casualty figures were 997 Marines and 30 sailors killed in action, 88 Marines missing and presumed dead, and 2,233 Marines and 59 sailors wounded. This came to a total casualty figure for the 76-hour battle at 3,407. The percentage is 19% and the three-day loss was almost as heavy as what was suffered in the six-month campaign at Guadalcanal. Three photographers at Tarawa, and they immediately sent home their reports and pictures of dead Marines on the beach with truly horrible stories for the parents who had sons fighting there. There was an immediate outcry of why and who to blame, especially about those who died on the reef because of the tide. One mother wrote to Admiral Nimbus of the Navy, telling him that he had personally killed her son. But he did not waver. He said the capture of Tarawa knocked down the front door to the Japanese defenses in the Central Pacific. And if nothing else, the logistical issues of the Higgins boats and the alligators were hard lessons on what needed to be done for future amphibious assaults, including the fact that they would need many more of them. They had been marginal in battle and needed more armor, heavier guns, and more powerful engines. They would also need self-sealing gas tanks and wood plugs the size of 13-millimeter bullets to keep from being sunk by the heavy Japanese machine guns. The changes were started immediately and would be ready for the two um, invasions coming up on Iwo Jima and Okinawa. On December 31, 1943, there was a Standard Examiner article entitled Captain James O. Fox, Marine Corps Killed in Action. Mrs. Aldine Fox of 11125th Street had been informed today by the War Department that her husband, Captain James O. Fox, 27, 
of the U.S. Marine Corps has been killed in action while in the performance of his duty. He was the son of Mr. and Mrs. Owen Fox of Riverdale. Captain Fox was in the recent landings on South Pacific Islands, relatives believed. A letter from Jim's commanding officer read, On November 20th, 1943, while advancing with some of his men on Bayshell Island, Tarawa Atoll, Gilbert Islands, James was wounded. In spite of his wounds, he continued to advance and was later killed by enemy machine gun fire. His superlative courage and valiant disregard for his own personal safety were in keeping with the highest traditions of the United States Naval Service. So when a soldier or a Marine or even a sailor were killed on land, they would be buried by the military if at all possible. In his book, Helmet for My Pillow by Robert Leckie, he speaks about the battle on Guadalcanal and says Chuckler, who was his friend, and I visited the cemetery. We knelt to pray before the graves of the men we had known. Only palm fronds marked the places where they were buried, although many had rude crosses on which their dog tags were placed. On those, Marines has lovingly carved out epitaphs such as, He died fighting, a real Marine, a big guy with a bigger heart, or our buddy. He continues, Then there was this verse which I have seen countless times before and since, the direct and unpolished cry of a Marine's sardonic heart. And when he gets to heaven, to St. Peter he will tell, One more Marine reporting, sir, I've served my time in hell. On January 7, 1944, there's an article in The Standard that talks about a joint memorial service for Captain James L. Fox killed in action in the Pacific and also radio technician John G. Thatcher, who was killed in Italy. It will be conducted Sunday at 2 p.m. in the Riverdale LDS Ward Chapel by Bishop Gail Sheffield. On January 13, 1944, the signpost, Weber College's newspaper wrote, Former football star killed in Pacific action, Captain James O. Fox of the U.S. Marine Corps, a former college athletic star, was killed in action in the Battle of the Solomons. Captain Fox was born in Logan, Utah on December 27, 1916, and was at one time a resident of Evanston, Wyoming. The family moved in 1930 to their present home in Riverdale, Utah. Captain Fox was a member of the LDS Church of Riverdale and attended Riverdale Junior High, graduating from Weaver County High School in 1935. At Weaver College, he became prominent in athletics. His outstanding ability on the football field gave him the position of captain of the squad during the 1936-37 season. Upon his graduation from Weber College, he attended Utah State Agricultural College, where he also participated in athletics. In June 1940, James graduated from the college and enlisted in the Marine Corps. Approximately a year later in San Diego, he received his first lieutenant's commission, and his commission to captain followed on August 7, 1942. On August 10, 1942, while on the furlough, Captain Fox married the former Miss Aldine M. Hatfield. Upon his return to duty, Captain Fox received his overseas orders and left San Diego for action in the South Pacific on November 2, 1942. Weber College remembers this fine athlete with pride and honors the name of Captain James L. Fox. Utah State also paid tribute to him in the alumni newsletter of March 1944. There is an article entitled, Captain James L. Fox, Class of 39, Utah State, has added the name of one more of her sons, Captain James L. Fox, to the rapidly lengthening role of honored dead who have given their lives in World War II. 
Prior to the Tarawa action, Captain Fox had served a year in the South Pacific as commanding officer of a company of men who are veterans of Pearl Harbor and the Solomon Battle Area. The company was in the initial landing party on Bayshell Island. After graduation, Captain Fox was employed by the federal government on a soil survey staff. He enlisted in the U.S. Marine Corps in February of 41 and was commissioned three months later. On August 4th, he married Aldine Hatfield, Utah class of 1940. Shortly afterward, Captain Fox left for overseas duty. Aldine is now teaching school in Ogden. So after the war, the family requested that Captain Fox's body be returned, and it arrived on October 14, 1947. On October 17, 1947, his obituary in the standard read, Services set for Marine Captain. Graveside services for Captain James O. Fox, 27, who was killed in the taking of Tarawa on November 21, 1945, will be conducted at the Altruist Memorial Park at 3.30 by E. Gail Sheffield, Bishop of the LDS Roy Ward. Full military honors will be accorded by the VFW and appropriate music will be directed by the mortuary. Surviving are his widow of Salt Lake City, his parents in Roy, a grandmother, Mrs. Annie Fox Ogden, and the following brothers and sisters, W.H. Fox, Hooper, Utah, Byron O. and Glenn J. Fox, and Alice Ann Fox of Roy, and Mrs. Jean Bassett at Idaho Falls, Idaho. And this was really interesting to me because I hadn't seen this so far in World War II, but the body will be taken to the family home in Roy Friday at 5 p.m. I know that in, I think, the 1920s and the 1930s, and probably before that, bodies were often viewed at the homes of the families. But this is the first time that I have seen where a, a body... Um, during World War II was delivered to the home for our viewing. So thanks for joining. Please join us again on the next podcast. You can find us at Weber County's Greatest Generation on my Facebook page or on iTunes. Thank you.